Welcome to Dr. Cindy Speaks. Regular musings and reflections on politics, current events, and life as a congressional candidate. Dr. Cindy Banyer is a mom and small business owner fighting for our water, our health, our community. She's running for the people of Southwest Florida, trying to flip Florida 19 from red to blue. Listen as she speaks truth to power and gets real about being a mom and a candidate. Hello, everybody. Dr. Cindy Banyer here, candidate for Congressional District 19 in Florida. That's Southwest Florida, Cape Coral and Fort Myers, all the way down to Naples. I am a mom and small business owner, and I care about our water, our health, and our community. And we have some very exciting things going on, and including a very special guest joining us from Utah. We will have Jamie Cheek with us shortly. And when we see her on, we're gonna have her join us. But otherwise today, I just wanna tell you a little bit about what's going on here. It's Monday, it's a new week for us here in Florida. We are just about a week and a half into the stay at home order in Florida. And we have not seen much in terms of the flattening of the curve here in Florida, but already you can see politicians and business owners getting a little bit antsy about what's going on. And it's a little bit scary for me because we have heard from experts. And in fact, the Florida Surgeon General today was talking about how that we should continue to have social distancing measures until we have a vaccine, which can take up to a year. And in the press conference where that occurred and the doctor is talking with people about what he believes is going to be the best course for the public health across the state, we immediately see the team of Governor Ron DeSantis scurry him away because it was pretty clear what he was saying was not something that he agreed with and that he was likely to act on. Governor DeSantis has already been talking about potentially opening schools. Schools in the state of Florida here are now closed until May 4th. Our school year typically only goes until the end of May anyway, but they're thinking that maybe they should send the, the kids back into the school. This has created a public debate across local media here in Southwest Florida, as I'm sure it is around the state of Florida, as to what people think and will they actually send their kids back to school. Now, this is a a very challenging situation and one that is causing a lot of alarm and, in my opinion, is very um, premature, frankly, um, much along the lines of having President Donald Trump talk about reopening the economy and Just to speak about what he's been saying over the past couple of days, it's been pretty frightening, if I do say so myself, how uh, he has taken on this, you know, dictator role and his daily 
press conferences becoming more and more circus-like, including more and more propaganda, including today a, a video that has been widely criticized as being very propaganda-like, demonstrating all the amazing, great, and effective things that his administration has done to lead us to this prestigious position of being uh, the world leader in terms of the amount of COVID-19 cases, and uh, we're doing, we're on our way up in terms of deaths as well, noting that most places across the country have yet to reach their peak. Um, and, you know, he's heard him say on several occasions, oh, who could have known this was going to happen, and we're doing a great job, and this is all just an immense gaslighting of Americans and clearly revisionist in his perspective and history. The other things that are really frightening about some of the rhetoric coming out of President Trump includes that the president, in his opinion, has total authority on seemingly everything. And a lot of the media discussions at the national level around what we know based on about a month ago when the president came out and started saying, okay, we actually have to take this thing serious. And he rolled out a, a series of um, business partners whom he wanted to engage with to stop the virus. And it was clear, clearer now, I guess, a month out than at the time that uh, he didn't have any clear understanding of his authority or the limits of it, as well as the capacity of his so-called business partners. We saw one business partner such as Target, who is part of that, that Trump um, press conference about a month ago, who said, yeah, great, we're happy to be a partner, but the, we're waiting for the federal government to take the lead on it. And so they haven't done anything. The promises of drive-through testing facilities all over the country via these private businesses has uh, rendered eight testing facilities like that across the country, clearly not widespread at all. And it's just a lot of false promises. And again, really a lack of understanding about what the president can do. Right. And that is, you know, flabbergasting to me that we have a leader that doesn't even understand what his you know scope of work is what his jurisdiction is and he's leading americans to believe things that are not only impossible for him to do but that among the business partners are not possible to be done and you know, there was also discussion about the website and there was going to be this website that was essentially going to virtually triage people and send them to testing locations that, again, not um, happened so far. And this is troubling. Right. And we have in the state of Florida, a governor who is following along with whatever Trump says. And it's just really troubling, right? Um, and so when we have public health experts and they are saying, these are the things that we need to do to keep people safe. And yeah, this is probably going to last a lot longer. And we're going to have to think about how we're going to keep, you know, things going while keeping people safe. And we have this kind of overt pressure 
focusing on the economy, saying we just need to open things up, it's just created this really sick understanding of our world. And um, it's exposed a lot of cracks, I think, in our society, as well as I will say, by the way, some very troubling, you know, feelings for, by people as well. You know, there's, and I will say that probably this is, you know, not necessarily a partisan issue as well, but that there are this, there's this feeling that people have that the government is trying to control them and tell them to stay in place. And, you know, they're being fearful about that. And why is the government telling us to do these things? And this is America and freedom of this and freedom of that. Right. And it really does, I think, kind of bring up an interesting discussion as to what are the limits. And frankly, from when I think about it, I think about not only just what are the rule of law limits, so to speak, but how could we create a society where people are willing to do what is necessary to protect the public health or protect any public good for that matter? And what what would it take for us to get to that point is something that I think about. And this kind of harkens back to my experience in as being a community development expert, helping communities find their voice and helping people come to consensus based on a broader good. So my mind, in my mind, I'm always thinking of how do we create this situation? Because it is very troubling for a lot of people when it feels like it's mandated. However, you can create situations where people engage in behavior that ultimately has a public benefit. However, (laughs) there has to be clear rationale. There has to be a clear, you know, threat there has to be essentially a light at the end of the tunnel for people to be able to want to engage in these kind of public good activities, the sacrifices to get to that public good. And I think this is where I get extremely dismayed about the lack of good messaging, the lack of respect for science and the lack of respect for the data around um, what's happening and the data collection too. I, I have a big pet peeve around that, but we have this, you know, we have to be able to trust people and without that trust, and this is actually where a lot of my research is, but without that trust, because trust has been so significantly eroded from the president on down in a lot of jurisdictions that people do not act in this kind of with this public good mindset, because we haven't developed that sense of community. And so that's something for me that's very dismaying as I'm watching the the fraudulent, you know, the poor data collection, the poor tracking, the terrible reporting on it. And then just the 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 flip, you know, dictatorial style of Trump over the last week or so in particular, watching him escalate this, watching him be concerned about PR and not people um, has been very dismaying for me. So there's the kind of lay of the land here right now. But um, I just saw our guest try to call in. So I'd like her to call in one more time. Sorry, I was talking a little bit too long there. But if you call in again, we'll get you to come in and talk. Um, We have a very exciting um, opportunity here this evening to speak 
with another congressional candidate here. And our focus here this evening is going to be on elections in the states and what it takes for candidates to get on the ballot. So I'm going to get Jamie connected and we'll see if she can talk Hello. to us. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Fantastic. Thanks so much for being here with us this evening on Dr. Cindy Speaks. Thank you for having me. This is uh, this has been an adventure <laughs> through Podbean, so this has been great. <laughs> well, I'm so glad that you're able to navigate it. Um, you know, we just spun up this, um, you know, this whole you know, podcast thing just a couple of weeks ago in response to the coronavirus outbreak. It's something that I had always wanted to do. I guess in my little heart, I was an aspirational <laughs> podcaster. Um, yeah. And yeah, this gave me the opportunity to do it. So, you know, but we're kind of learning as we go, right? So I'm so glad you're able to be here. And before we kind of dive into the topic, um, I wanted to just preface, you know, how Jamie and I uh, got connected. So Jamie and I got connected through the National coalition no dem left behind which focuses on helping democrats who are running in heavily red districts and so we started back in the fall of last year being connected through this coalition and working together on you know initiatives and kind of crafting shared policy and fundraising but you know really creating this sense of community amongst uh, Democrats who are running as major underdogs in their districts um, and so yes. I'm so happy to have my my NDLB um, uh, <laughs> colleague here this evening uh, so we can talk about something that's really uh, affecting us both but before we jump into that Jamie if you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself and your run and you know kind of just introduce yourself to our podcast audience. Awesome. So I am Jamie Cheek. I am running for U.S. Congress in Utah, CD1, um, which covers basically the entire northern region. And we are the only congressional district that does not touch Salt Lake City. So uh, that has been, you know, rightfully gerrymandered. But we are not one of the four um, that touch it. Um, I am running uh, on a more liberal progressive agenda here in Utah. Um, Kind of in Utah, we see a lot of the same kind of candidates coming up to run, which is, you know, I'm a Democrat, but I'm just a little bit left of center, and we keep losing these races um, to Republicans. We only have a handful um, of Democratic representatives uh, in our state legislature. We have just barely gotten a Democratic congressional um, candidate elected back in 2018. And so um, when my representative decided to retire uh, this this cycle, we saw it as an opportunity to try something different. <laughs> and so uh, we're, like you said, a tiny blue dot in a sea of red. <laughs> and we just kind of want to see where it takes us. Um, so currently in our race, um, we are, um, Utah's unique insofar as we have both a convention system and a primary system. And so um, on April 25th, we'll have our convention to see, um, there's only two candidates who are running on the Democratic side. So one of us might win at convention if we don't um, then we would have a primary that goes till June um, so we're just kind of we're doing like a little mini ramp up <laughs> with our delegates um, for convention versus like a full um, 
campaign-wide primary. Um, but I'm just running. Um, I work for the state of Utah uh, for the Department of Workforce Services with the State Office of Rehabilitation, which is kind of a mouthful, but it just means that um, I work with people with disabilities and we focus on helping them find employment. Um, and so this COVID crisis has certainly uh, impacted many of our clients, um, as well as the staff that I work with every day. Um, and so it's just kind of finding that new reality uh, of what that looks like. And, and I think as candidates, but also um, as someone who works for the, the social good, it's it's been different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we're all going to be trying to find what that new normal looks like. Um, and I've been racking my brains trying to figure out what it is, but I think like a lot of people, you know, we're just in this like trying to figure everything out mode right now. Um, mm-hmm. But I certainly appreciate the position that you're in working <laughs> workforce. Yes. But so, so before we jump into the, the, the questions specific to the elections process, tell us a little bit more about your position. So what are the major things that you're fighting for in your campaign? Yeah, so um, we have a couple positions that we've outlined as kind of our priorities for um, Utah, um, kind of the biggest pieces of affordable health care. Um, we see far too many Utahns, but also Americans who struggle um, to obtain health insurance. Um, one of the pieces uh, of my job is that we look for, we do a restoration plan for people with disabilities. And so it's always you need treatment, how do we access it? And there's just a gap between, you know, Medicaid being available um, for Americans. So many of our states won't implement the Medicaid expansion, which is uniquely hurting um, a lot of those Americans who fall through the through the gap there. Um, and also, we're now seeing the crisis of having your insurance tied to your employment. So while the unemployment numbers don't look great, those are also people who are getting kicked off of their insurance in a, in a literal health crisis. And so it's just we, we have to kind of change the narrative on how it is that we provide health care in this country. And so, um, you know, looking at things like a public option and allowing, um, you know, there to be true competition uh, for health insurance so that people the Americans kind of benefit from that process. Um, here in Utah, another big piece for us is uh, we have some of the worst air pollution uh, in the United States, um, and it's because we're, we're based in a mountain, and so we have a lot of inversion, which uh, is a natural phenomenon. However, when you put a whole bunch of air pollutants in there, it, it becomes devastating for the people living uh, in the valleys of these mountains. And so um, a priority of sustainable green energy as well as um, creating, you know, those green jobs and, and sort of moving some of this pollution either out or around. Um, as a state, we've been doing a lot of telecommuting um, and we're, we're taking that adventure a little bit further uh, in the world of the COVID crisis. Um, but just knowing that something needs to be done and that it, it's hurting Utahns. And so we need to, we need to be more proactive. Um, also, Utah is one of the worst states for per pupil funding for public education. And so um, we definitely have a 
we have a big piece of our conversation about how it is that education is funded and how the federal government can help in that process, but also um, investing in our youth. We have one of the youngest populations uh, in the country um, because we do have larger families, um, so it drives that average down, and so we need to be doing more um, for our youth in this country, um, as well as um, kind of the, the big piece is, is giving, we call it giving it power back to the people that we want the government to work uh, for the individual voters that you shouldn't have access to legislatures based on how much money you have or what PACs you're associated with or what special interests you represent. Uh, In the state of Utah, our representatives, over 70% of their funding comes from outside the state. So when we struggle as constituents to get access to our legislators, it's because they don't have to listen to us. It's because they're getting money and support um, from places that are not Utah. And so I kind of want to, and that's one of the big pieces of my campaign is that we don't accept PAC money. We don't accept special interest money. And so when people donate to our campaign, it's because they really care about these issues and that they, you know, want to see good, clean politics and see and elect individuals who care more about the people than they do um, about special interests. Well, that's really interesting. I hadn't realized that it was so heavily influenced by the outside <laughs> in Utah. That's, that's mm-hmm. astonishing. And you, I, I feel, I feel very similar to, you know, I'm fighting against big interests in our state and outside of mm-hmm. our state, but we have pretty heavily uh, vested interests in, you know, tourism and agriculture mm-hmm. and in um, development, you know, physical development. Mm-hmm. And right. uh, they they make a lot of heavy handed decisions that often leave the people, you know, with mm-hmm. polluted waters and, um, you know, bad uh, environmental management overall. And the water, that's why I always lead with water is because <laughs> the water is the one that tied, you know, binds everything together between our freshwater supply and our, our beaches. Um and it's often overlooked in Florida. So the other thing that was interesting is that you and I have kind of uh, opposite than demographics because Florida, particularly area of Florida that I'm uh, working to represent, has a, a much older population on average because we get a lot of mm-hmm. the snowbirds and the retirees come down <laughs> here. Um, mm-hmm. So we, you know, we have, a, a, you know, just a flip in a lot of those folks, they vote with very different interests. And right. so that's, uh, that's a very interesting phenomenon. But I think for us, mm-hmm. too, education is extremely important because we do have a growing uh, younger population. And I was thinking even today around some research kind of saying that millennials are going to kind of bear the brunt of this <laughs> employment kind of crisis that's coming out of the coronavirus. I think I saw that right. it was about 52% of uh, millennials are now unemployed Mm -hmm. making them the highest like demographic you know like generation of folks who are unemployed they were the i mean when are when are the millennials gonna get catch a break (laughs) like i don't know getting the brunt of everything (laughs) i don't know i consider myself an elder millennial too so i'm on that cusp and you know yeah it is it's like blame for everything and now now they can't tell us you know do you just need to stop you know buying so much avocado toast and starbucks (laughs) Right. Uh, that's clearly not the issue. So. No. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> exactly. But yeah. So, but so, so the other thing, aside from uh, the No Dem Left Behind, and aside from our desire to serve our communities and give mm-hmm. power back to the people inside of the special interest, Jamie and I also have some very interesting circumstances around 
our elections process. And for those of you that have listened to prior uh, podcasts of mine or you know been watching what I've been doing over the past several weeks, um, <laughs> I have been leading a bipartisan coalition across the state of Florida that is now at 49 candidates. Uh, and this is Yay. up and down the ballot. Yay, thank you. Uh, you know, we have um, <laughs> congressional candidates all the way down to county commissioners. And um, I have uh, sheriff candidates, local candidates, because we are mm-hmm. all um, trying to qualify by petition or in our state, mm-hmm. we can qualify and, uh, you know, or we can do uh, by paying the fee. And it's wildly mm-hmm. uh, skewed. <laughs> top to bottom. <laughs> and when the pandemic hit for us, uh, it was right as our deadlines were coming up. Right. Mm-hmm. And for me in particular, for those of you that are not familiar with my situation as a congressional candidate, we had to have our petitions in to our local supervisor of elections by March 23rd. Oh goodness. And the supervisors of elections offices were closed. Oh no. <laughs> yes, they were. Um, and so, you know, in our last, basically our se- several weeks, uh, field campaign push to get, uh, the amount that we needed was thwarted by the pandemic. And I had a large student population and I'm, you know, mm. I worked at the university here and all the students disbanded once the university mm-hmm. closed and everybody yep. everything just closed down. And so yep. petitions couldn't be gathered and, mm-hmm. um, and so we, I kind of started gathering this theme saying, hey, we need to address this. Like, there was no way for us to even get in the petitions. And by the way, <laughs> now it's a massive, uh, you know, even a bigger barrier than it would have been for, you know, underdog and, you know, non-establishment candidates uh, to get <laughs> onto the ballot. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, with these high fees. And so we've built right. this coalition and we've been doing press conferences and press releases <laughs> and sending the letter to the governor, sending a letter to the secretary of state. Uh, a, nice. a week and a half ago, we got a small rule change that allowed our state to collect signatures um, uh, digitally now. It used to be <laughs> original signatures, which made it even more complicated, which was very mm-hmm. good. Uh, it was good news for the down ballot candidates, but not so good for us congressional candidates. And, and right. not to mention, we still lost several weeks now. <laughs> A lot of these grassroots mm-hmm. campaigns uh, with limited capacity would now have to basically U-turn mm-hmm. over to digital p- petition collecting. And some of them right. are, are, you know, taking it on and they're very happy about it. But basically <laughs> all of us sorry about that, uh, mm-hmm. agree that this is still not fair. It still favors the established candidates. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. this election should not be decided or the people who end up on the ballot shouldn't just be the people with the biggest piggy banks the day that the coronavirus, right. you know, kind of hit us. That's incredibly right. disingenuous uh, to the voters <laughs> in our state, right? Um, yes. And so so we started this coalition. We've been working and working and working. And so I've been having this dialogue and, you know, we were doing research on other states and because the other thing that's underlying this for us, right? It's kind of, we have the special circumstance with coronavirus, of course. But mm-hmm. if you look at just the qualification process for us here, it's mm-hmm. incredibly high. We have the highest qualification fees, um, mm-hmm. apparently aside from Republicans in Arkansas, um, <laughs> oddly enough. But we have the highest, you know, qualification fees out of anybody else in the country. And we have, mm-hmm. you know, one of the highest um, petition requirements mm-hmm. in Florida. 
And so, you know, we were talking through folks in the coalition and we're saying, hey, Utah also has some interesting (laughs) and high bar and big barrier issues with their elections process and qualification. So can you tell us a little Mm -hmm. bit about what's going on with that in Utah? Um, Well, actually, so you said that they allow you to do digital signatures. I'm wondering um, when they say that, what what is that? What does a digital signature look like for you guys in Florida? They don't know. <laughs> That's what's been so Perfect. fun about emergency rules, too, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. It's, and this is, I actually had been speaking with the, the attorneys for the Secretary of State about this. And I, because like I said, I got 50 people essentially in this coalition and we're talking mm-hmm. and, and, you know, everybody's getting different information. Their supervisors of elections are getting different things. Um, right. And all they did is they literally just took the, the candidate handbook and struck out the word original. <laughs> Oh, and okay. like add something like whatever. But basically, <laughs> it says you still have to you still have to look like the handwritten one that's on your driver's license or voter registration, right? Okay. So yep. they mm-hmm. said, oh, it can be a photograph, or then they and then they had the attorneys had told some people that it could be done through things like DocuSign or one of those kind of platforms, as long as it looks like the one they have on file, but. Did everybody get this memo? Nope. You know, they just told the candidates, like, here's the rule change. Good luck figuring it out. And frankly, they don't mm-hmm. even know. And we still mm-hmm. have to turn them into the supervisor's elections office, which are still closed. Right. Right. Well, and it's just interesting because we, so we have also, um, yeah, so Utah <laughs> has multiple paths to the ballot, um, like you do. Um so we also required original signatures um, for our petition gathering. Um, and they did the same thing where they said, now you can collect a digital signature. But what that really means is you can send your person a PDF and they can print it and they can sign it and then they can scan it back to you. <laughs> and then yeah. you can put that in your booklet. <laughs> and it's like, it, these are people who like that's an that's a really high bar for people to be able to do like that's a that's a lot of infrastructure (laughs) to be able to collect a signature um so it's not it's not helpful um so what we did um so for the state of utah for a congressional candidate um you can collect um, 7,000 signatures um, and they have to be registered voters and they have to be registered in your district um and if you get your 7,000 signatures um, verified, then you get a guaranteed spot on the primary ballot. And that sounds confusing because we, like I said, have two different paths. So everyone has to pay the filing fee um, within our filing guidelines. So our filing dates were like March 19th to, or sorry, March 13th to March 19th. And so for our race, we had to pay $485, which um, the way that they figure the fee is it's 1% of the salary of the seat that you're running for. Um, So that's actually a relatively low bar compared to what your filing fee is. (laughs) It's $10,440. Yeah, that's like 10% of the seats that you're running for. Right, which is insurmountable for, right, it means that people don't have access to the ballot. Yes, exactly. It's retired people. It's people who are independently wealthy. It's, you know, so it's like same old, same old. So that's nice. So everybody has to pay the filing fee regardless of whether or not we we call it convention or um, 
or, or signatures as, as your two pass. So we originally did indicate that we were going to try to collect signatures and we were in the process of doing that. Um, but then um, when kind of the COVID started happening, um, we actually put out a release that we suspended signature gathering um, out of the safety for our, our voters um, and our, and our constituents. But unlike you, uh, it, it doesn't uniquely harm us <laughs> because uh, two things. One, we have convention, which is actually April 25th. And so what happens at convention is you have state delegates um, and they're the only ones who can vote at convention. And so what we've been doing the past two weeks is the de- independent counties have been electing their delegates to the state convention. And so for my race, we're at about a little bit over 400 delegates um, who will decide the primary, the, the convention primary um, for our seat specifically. And so um, if at convention a candidate obtains 60 percent of the votes, they automatically get to be the nominee. Um, if you get 30% of the votes, you qualify for the ballot. So say we had like five candidates and three of them hit 30%. Though I think, or no, sorry, if there's more than, if there's more than two, the top 2% go to the ballot, um, but you have to qualify with the 30%. In my race, since there's only two of us, um, one of, we might go to convention and we each get like, you know, 50 two and 50 or like 47. So neither of us would win. Um, we would then go to the primary ballot, which is in June at, on June 30th. Um, but if one of, and neither of us collected signatures, what does happen is if say I had collected signatures and my opponent hit the 60% um, at convention for, for votes, then I, we would, it would still force a primary because I collected signatures. Oh, okay. So it's sort of like, we're putting all of our eggs in the convention basket <laughs> by not collecting signatures. So what you see a lot of actually is since we're a very Republican heavy state, um, a lot of Republican candidates will obtain those signature requirements because the primary uh, or their convention is really divided. Um, so for instance, uh, I'm pretty sure this is correct. Mitt Romney did not win at convention, um, but then solidly crushed at the primary. But it, the only reason he was able to do that is because he had collected signatures to protect against whatever happened at convention. So it's kind of, it's, it's more of a safety net um, depending on how, what happens at convention. So in my race, we have two Democrats, but we have 12 Republicans who have filed. It's not a song like my race. <laughs> Right. And it's because we don't have an incumbent. So basically everybody who wanted to file for this race is like, well, why not? Because if I get it, like if I win the primary, then I win the seat. And so yep. they're kind of, you know, willing to run that risk, <laughs> which is, yep. you know, awesome. <laughs> yep. um, so and there are, we have 10. We oh, have 10, 10 yep. Republicans. And actually and we have thought- 11, one dropped out. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and honestly, some of them who who signed up because we've been following the race since we've been running since September. Um, we've kept our eye on the race, you know, pretty closely. And so there were some filers who I was like, I have never even heard of you. <laughs> um, in fact, it got so bad that when they were announcing new people who were running for Republicans, they just stopped mentioning Democrats because the list was just too long. Yep. <laughs> oh, yeah. the they do that anyway here. And actually, we did have a brand new um woman, young woman who, um, you know, I don't even know if she's going to qualify or whatever, but she, <laughs> she put in her paperwork and she's apparently campaigning on Twitter or not Twitter, um, Tinder, Tinder oh. and Hive. 
um, and various <laughs> other dating platforms. And I am fascinated. I'm fascinated. <laughs> Yes, that works. Um, yes, and then she wants to be my Facebook friend too. So I'm just saying. I I don't know. Obviously, (laughs) (laughs) who doesn't? (laughs) This is such a you know our race is uh, you know a circus when it comes down. There's a heavily red district, and your incumbent you know is not running. Then it it gets to be like this. So I get it. But let's go back to the process a little bit. So that's very interesting. Sorry, you have yes. No, no. Hey, listen, I can dive into that pond anytime. But um, (laughs) so. 7,000 signatures, though, is seems massive. And when is, yeah. when is your, your deadline to get those in? Or yeah, so if we were still... Yeah, so if we were still collecting signatures, you file your intent to gather signatures in, in February. And then your um, you have to turn them in two weeks before your convention. So they would be due right about now. <laughs> um, wow, and so that, we have all, a short time period. Yeah, so it's two months. Wow. And then it's, it's the same window for all candidates. So we may seem like we have a big task with 7,000, but our governor candidates have to get 28,000. Wow. <laughs> yes. Um, wow. And so it, it's, it's a really high bar. Um, and so I think there's only three candidates on the Republican side in my race who even tried to collect signatures. Um, and so uh, it's interesting. So there's 12 of them. Three of them have done the 7,000 signature benchmark. Um, and then two of them are going to come out of convention. And so it's just a question of, are those other three going to make it five for the primary? <laughs> Is some of the people who have 7,000 signatures going to be one of the winners of convention. Um, the good news is, is no matter what, uh, the Republicans will not know who their candidate is until June 30th. Hmm, so interesting. So yeah. it's interesting. So even though you, your state has this high bar for petitions, the petitions are kind of like a backup. Your qualification yes. fee is lower. And mm-hmm. but then there's this convention process that kind of gets people on the ballot. So yeah. there's multiple paths, like you said, and that's interesting. Yeah. So let me, let me tell you a little bit about how it works in Florida, just so you yes. can feel better about your process. <laughs> um, Love it. So, I'm ready. <laughs> yeah. You have to get, um, you know, in a space on the population of the district. But for my district, I have to get 5,052 signatures. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, and I, I don't know if you, you didn't talk so much about this, but we have, mm-hmm. they have to be verified by the, the supervisor of, of elections in the county where they were collected. So for instance, my district goes over two counties. So the ones that are in Collier at the center of that one and the ones that are in Lee at the center of that one. I have to pay <laughs> the supervisors of elections to process them at five cents Oof. a piece. You also Oof. have an approximately, wow. and that, so in the, the, when they do the, their verification too, by the way, there's a very high rejection mm-hmm. rate because they're going, they're doing the, the, the matching and all that stuff like mm-hmm. right then and there. So we have, right. Heard on average across the state of Florida, it's twenty seven percent. There are some candidates that are mm. part of our coalition that said their rejection rate was as high as sixty percent. So wow, wow, Oof. right? And think about this: so mm-hmm. every time they mm-hmm. turn in like a batch of about uh, petitions, they have to pay, and that's mm-hmm. you know five hundred dollars, right? You know things like that mm-hmm. adds up to. So if you yeah. get that. By that March 23rd deadline for us, if you get your amount that you're supposed to have for your district, you get that amount, you're good, you have qualified for the ballot. End of story. Okay. Mm. Then you have to, okay. and this is the other 
and it's like then there's like a candidate thing we have to sign and basically drive to Tallahassee to turn it in. That was the other thing. <laughs> Yes. Uh, rule change was that they're like, oh, well, we'll accept this documentation like in a regular way. <laughs> you don't have to drive. <laughs> um, so oh, how, how pleasant. Thing, <laughs> right. And so if you do not get your exact amount of petitions, then you mm-hmm. have to, the only other way that you can get on the ballot is to pay. And it's straight across the board, across the state, $10,440. So again, really, no matter what race, no matter. Well, I mean, for the congressional candidates and all the other oh, okay. the states, okay. the other ones, it's, it's all different. <laughs> like, I, I couldn't even tell you. Okay. And it, 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 in, in, I even saw people um, like in our local county commissioners, the county commissioners got to get like 5,000 petitions, too. So it's it's so bizarre mm-hmm. <laughs> how they decided. <laughs> um all right, so then you can pay, if you yeah. pay the $10,440, you get on the ballot, bada bing, bada boom. Um, but mm-hmm. the thing is also, so in, but you can, even if you put in like 5,000 instead of 5,052 ballots, you, it's not like you get a reduction in the qualification fee or anything. It's just like, oh, you didn't qualify for a petition, um. you're done. Um, the other thing, uh. so that's how we work in Florida. And so, obviously, this mm-hmm. is a major barrier. This is for grassroots candidates. Oh. This is a high thing, especially if you are already paying for staff and website and all the other mm-hmm. things that you need to be yeah. running a campaign. Having this lot of cash mm-hmm. is is a challenge. Mm-hmm. On a good day, it's a challenge totally. right? yeah. for grassroots candidates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, <laughs> and there's plenty of candidates yeah. right now that are just. I mean, they're not going to have it. I mean, we have parts of our coalition. We have. Um, candidates who they themselves have lost their jobs. They were, you know, um, Mm. working in restaurants and, you know, working class folks. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they're like, how can I'm, you know, I can't even like pay my bills now. (laughs) And then how can I ask other people for money to fundraise too? Um, Mm So we have this kind of really, you know, Bar- like built-in barriers, right? And it was funny when I was mm-hmm. talking to the Secretary of State's uh, attorney about this, and her thing was, she said, mm-hmm. oh, well, you know, we really want candidates that have community support. That's why the petitions are so mm-hmm. high, and that's why we have to keep the, the qualification fees so high. And I'm like, tell mm-hmm. me again how the dude that owns a bunch <laughs> of Dunkin' Donuts who decided to run for this week <laughs> two weeks ago has community support. Mm-hmm. Now, does he have community yes. support or is he just got buckets of cash? Hmm. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. You um, only care about community support until the dollar signs show up. <laughs> oh, sure. Sure. And the other thing that we've been asking and that a bunch of other folks in our coalition have been asking is like, so where does this money go? Like, this is a lot of money mm-hmm. that the state just put somewhere in the Secretary yeah. of State, you know, but money bin. <laughs> Mm-hmm. around in it like Scrooge McDuck. Yeah. I don't know. We have no idea. And there were uh, some people had uh, you know applied for a Freedom of Information Act, asking for you know transparency on where this money goes. So it's it's a money maker. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that was striking mm-hmm. and that I've learned through this process of dealing with folks in the state of Florida is that there were 38 candidates in the congressional races across the state of Florida who had indicated they were going to try to qualify by petition. And only three did. Mm-hmm. 
just like you were wow. saying, you know, in Utah, and I don't know how many mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. in across Utah had decided that's what they wanted to do, but what it just ends mm-hmm. up being for me, that metric was like, this is way higher than yep. like what is reasonable mm-hmm. if you have a, you know, a less than <laughs> you 10% of people would do it. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Absolutely. So anyway, yeah, so that's like what's going on with me. And, you know, we were looking at, and I don't know if you had seen uh, the the other states too, um, but mm-hmm. it's just, you know, there are places where there are like virtually nothing. It's a, it's a few hundred dollars um, to get on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's, this is a very interesting mm-hmm. kind of concept around how states set up their elections too, um, right. watching play out mm-hmm. across the country. So, so tell me a little bit, were there yes. on any special considerations that your state gave in light of the coronavirus outbreak? Um, yeah. So, um, like I said, we have pretty strict requirements on our signatures, kind of exactly like you guys do, where literally there is someone in the elections office that is matching that signature to their driver's license um, and matching their address. And if there's any sort of discrepancy, they they toss that signature. Um, I think here in Utah, our rejection rate on average, especially if you pay for signature gathering, um, it's, you know, mid to high 20 percent that that get rejected. There were... um, it's interesting that you say that, you know, you went from 38 candidates to three that were able to qualify from ballots. Um, we have a governor's race that's really contested as well because our governor um, is, is outgoing. And so uh, there's several candidates for governor, but only three of them so far have qualified for signatures. Um, and one of them, who's one of the perceived favorites, he had a rejection rate of like 50 to 60 percent which was shocking. <laughs> and so he had to, he had to do some real scrambling um, to get some of those signatures, but yeah, so they, they allowed for digital signatures. Um, if you're running um, a statewide race or a multi-county race, um, you have to file uh, in Salt Lake city. So we had to go file at the Lieutenant governor's office um, which we were doing like right kind of at the start <laughs> of like our slow shutdown. So we're one of the few states that are also not on a shelter in place order. Um, mm. And so there's a little bit more flexibility there, um, but certainly all like events have been canceled um, and it's just for safety reasons for not doing any of that sort of canvassing. So yeah, you can do the digital signatures, but it's just kind of an insurmountable barrier. I felt like, so it's just, right. It was helpful, but not really. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, here, like a band-aid. yeah, with uh, listening to mm-hmm. me earlier, you know, Florida, we are on, you know, we're just over a week and a half into our safer kind of stay at home or something order, um, which is very, <laughs> yes. you know, just, just exceedingly, you know, you know, trust inducing and across our state. And so you have like a bunch of people who are like taking it really serious and they're home and they're, you know, doing this. And then we have a whole bunch of other people that are like, I'm going to go to the golf course and let's open the beaches. And <laughs> I, I have, 
Yeah, I'm saying it's crazy. And like, even I, I, to, I had to go to the bank, like didn't even get out of my car, right? And I drove by this oh, restaurant mm-hmm. that, and this is for real, mm-hmm. they closed down, they got this big sign on the outside that says, we're closed down, we'll do delivery, we'll do takeout. Their porch was open. Mm-hmm. There was like 30 oh, people no. sitting on picnic tables, <laughs> eating their barbecue on the yes. porch. I'm just like, oh my God, do you not get it but and it has to do with this massive confusion yep. and we didn't have mm-hmm. any kind of clear direction and yep. our governor just keeps balking at every step of the turn and so <laughs> it's it's you know we had this stay-at-home order and everybody's like yes we're finally going to do the right thing because also keep in mind we do have an older population across <laughs> the state of florida and we All have right. a terrible health <laughs> system terrible right um we didn't open up the medicare uh you know uh medicaid exchanges like we did not i mean so we have tons (laughs) of people without health insurance we have tons of people with pre-existing conditions we have tons of older folks Mm -hmm. um and our hospital systems are just not well funded for the most part i mean maybe they are in some of the bigger cities Mm -hmm. around the state but certainly not in our area i'm I'm like, I'm watching the figures come out from my area where they're like, there are 212 total ICU beds in the Southwest Florida region. And by the way, they're 70% Mm -hmm. full. So, you know, we got about (laughs) 46 here. So, and on mine, and if, you know, for those of you that heard me talk about it, I've, I've been on my own personal self-isolation for, um, going on four weeks now because my littlest my youngest daughter who's three had a rare blood disease Mm -hmm. she uh has autoimmune disorder um and she Mm -hmm. had already had respiratory failure (laughs) so she's at exceedingly high risk to get this thing right yeah so as soon as i saw Uh that coming down the pipes i'm like nope (laughs) we are done we are staying here (laughs) as much as possible because there are 12 Mm -hmm. pediatric intensive care unit beds in this area of which there's about a 55% occupancy rate any given day. So, you know, now we're talking five. That means you can, there can be five Mm -hmm. pediatric cases in this region where the child would need to uh, an ICU bed. That's all we get. Right. And we're running out of blood, which makes me freak out about the blood disease part. So, so I'm in, I'm in the serious, like I'm taking this serious because this is like literally the life of yes. my child. Other people, not just yes. they're having barbecue on a porch. They're having a great time, um, which is very yep, strange. So, exactly. But back to the issue yes. of the elections part. Um, so <laughs> the other thing that we found so fascinating, and I don't know how this plays out for you guys in Utah, but mm-hmm. as I was building the coalition of, of the candidates across the state of Florida, one thing that, and, and mm-hmm. I was literally, when I started doing it, I was just like, I was whipping people. I'm like, get name, race, signature, give it to me. Are you on board? Here we mm-hmm. go. Send in a letter to the governor. <laughs> and then you yeah. had a, a virtual press, a press conference, right? And we're getting folks in and mm-hmm. off their cameras. It didn't even occur to mm-hmm. me. So I literally was looking at everybody on camera that a very, very significant mm-hmm. portion of our you know, coalition of candidates in Florida that are part of the ballot requirement initiative are candidates of color. A lot of black and African candidates, a lot of Latinx candidates. Mm -hmm. Um, All of us Mm -hmm. are 
working class for sure. Right. All of us are. Right. And then yeah. in a lot of women <laughs> candidates, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And so that to me, it hit me. And whereas I kind of started this coalition and the work around bringing awareness around this issue started as like, Hey, this mm-hmm. is not good. You know, this is a bad thing that we should be taking care of our elections process, even when there's a disaster kind of thing to, mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, this is right. exactly about barriers and barriers to access mm-hmm. to ballots and elections. Yep. So do you have a similar phenomena in Utah around some of these barriers? Um, well, so um, part of the issue is Utah, um, we're, we're not a very diverse state. <laughs> um, and so um, I think we have a lot of diversity issues um, just because we don't we don't have a lot of opportunities for those individuals. and There's not a lot of access um, here in the state of Utah. So I would say in my race, um, we do have a person of color. I'm a woman. Um, so there's no white dudes <laughs> on the democratic side. Um, but there are our, our congressional sort of slate of candidates. I think that we have a lot of concerns about diversity because we don't, we don't have very many diverse candidates. And I think it's because of things like access to the ballot. And um, sometimes I think it's hard for people to even build up the initiative to want to run for office um, because it just seems like there's so many of these barriers that are just kind of, you know, already staring you in the face. And so they, we don't even get to the point of them wanting to run or filing for office. Um, And so one of the things that um, I did as a candidate, because I I saw the great work we were doing with no Dem left behind. And so um, me and my campaign team, we also decided to build a coalition, um, the Siegel Lily coalition um, for Utah candidates. And it's, we're not endorsing, we're not picking and choosing. It is literally a coalition of candidates who can work together um, and kind of, not have to reinvent the wheel every time. So if you're a first time candidate, you know, how do you build a website? What forms do I fill out? What is an FEC deadline? You know, and just kind of being a really, you know, fun, pleasant resource for Democratic candidates in Utah um, to kind of help each other out. Because I think sometimes when we take the we don't pick sides in a primary instead of giving everybody the same opportunity, we give nobody any opportunities. And so a lot of candidates are having to fill that gap on their own. Yeah. And so um, that's kind of, we just barely started it. So it's very much in its infancy, but we have, you know, nine or 10 candidates who are now working with us um, and we're just trying to, you know, put democratic candidates forward, um, give them the best opportunity to run. And as a, as a pledge to help down ballot races, I think that this is probably the best version of that, that we could do as a congressional candidate is to help house races and commissioners and, you know, city council seats uh, or county council seats um, and just kind of, you know, help them along the way. So they don't have to figure it all out on their own and and make these races competitive. That's fantastic. Sorry, that was a side tangent. No, it's great. No. (laughs) I love that. And that's that's great work and important work that we learn, you know, and bringing people up. And I'll say, Mm -hmm. that's why I was laughing. Like, yeah, you know, rather because we have the same thing in our races here, our local parties and the caucuses and everything are like, Oh, well we, we're not picking who we like better, but what it ends up doing Mm -hmm. is like, then you get nothing. Like you have no resources. Yes. Anything. (laughs) And it's just really, Well, we don't want to give any favorites of them, like, yep. oh, really? but like, how about like a, a lifeline <laughs> or something? Um, 
Yes. So. Yes. And it's sort of, and they're like, um, and they're, but they tell Democratic candidates in Utah is you got to run twice. And I'm like, yeah, because you have to like figure out what it is that you're doing the first time to even have a shot <laughs> at the second time. And I was just like, if we could do more, you know, to candidate recruit, but also, you know, I kind of want to see this as like, oh, you want to run for office here? Here's a bank of resources. Here are people who have run for office. Ask them questions. You know, like some of my campaign people have already been helping some of these candidates, you know, build their websites or create graphics, you know, just just the little things that are like really overwhelming (laughs) when you're running for the first time. Um, And so it's just kind of that's that's really, you know, comes from my heart. It's like we should have more Democrats in office. And what is it that we can do as congressional candidates to make that difference? And so yeah. it's I don't know. It's it's heartwarming. <laughs> I know. I love it. I love it. And the just the last thing that I was thinking about that I, I wanted to kind of talk about it and want to uh, wanted to share this you know space and conversation with you, Jamie, is that this mm-hmm. so this there are the barriers. We talked about that. But this is really mm-hmm. about our democratic process and the ability of people to have representatives and representatives that mm-hmm. look like them, think like them, act like them, mm-hmm. and actually want to represent them. Not people who yes. are just bought and sold by special interest groups or their own personal mm-hmm. wealth. Right? And so... Right. For Mm -hmm. me, as I was taking on the initiative in Florida, you know, we started talking about this as this is about Florida elections and this is about voter choice because we're at a serious Mm -hmm. risk of having, you know, basically all 50 of these candidates across the state of Florida Mm -hmm. not be able to qualify because there is no longer a path Mm -hmm. for them. And fundraising for the down ballot candidates was going to be hard this year anyway, and now it's going to be almost impossible for a lot of them. And so <laughs> yep. took this on to, to be stewards of the democratic process and also to let yes. our state mm-hmm. know that we're watching, mm-hmm. we're watching, we're watching yes. the decisions you make on the ballots and the election. We're watching mm-hmm. as, because these are like functionary mm-hmm. things that the state has to do, right? This is yes. policy mm-hmm. and bureaucracy and they can just kind of, do it like this or not do it like this. And, and right. we're watching, but they can change it to make it harder for people. They can pick out dates. They can eliminate mm-hmm. all sorts of stuff and make this a very undemocratic yep. process. Process. So, and yep. that's why we're doing mm-hmm. it too. We're doing it for the barriers. We're doing it for the little guy. We're doing it, you know, to make sure that the voters have a choice. But we're also making a broader statement yes. that we will not even in a time of crisis mm-hmm. like this, allow <laughs> yep. a po- a politicians with their own mm-hmm. goals let our election mm-hmm. rules and laws go by the wayside. So there's yep. my pitch. But what exactly. I want to throw back to you <laughs> is if you were <laughs> Love it. like magic wand in the state of Utah, mm-hmm. what kinds of reforms yes. do you make to reduce the barriers for qualification for candidates in your state? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, allowing for signatures that don't have to be so brick and mortar. Um, I think we see a lot of um, 
access through technology uh, that, that we're just kind of so afraid to embark on that we, we keep hiding from it. So like DocuSign, you can buy a mortgage without even meeting your realtor. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, like you can get legal documents that you are signing and agreeing to without, you know, any of that sort of verification process. And so it's like, I think that we need to open these structures up and allow for validation uh, or I- identity verification, right? Like, I agree, we shouldn't have voter fraud. But I also feel like we could be more open and welcoming to what that process looks like, right? So some of our disadvantaged populations don't get to participate in the democratic process because of limitations, right? So individuals with disabilities can't go out to conventions or, you know, can't, you know, if they're immunocompromised, they can't be going out in public or they, you know, just don't have the access to participate. So when we got, we switched our convention process, or at least our, yeah, all of our conventions are going virtual. And so I think we saw an increase in participation because people were able to access that better than having to go to a school for a full day, yeah. right? And so I think per, like doing a dual opportunity for conventions, um, so you could attend virtually or in person, um, I think would be amazing and would uh, continue to increase our turnout. Um, and then I think, um, you know, sort of investigating why it is that we that we even have fees associated with filing. Um, and, and, and I agree with you. Where, where do those fees go? For my race alone, for CD1, the state of Utah, you know, took in $6,700 uh, with our very low filing fees. But it's what, what does that money go to? We do have a robust uh, vote by mail system. So I guess I'm hoping that's where that money goes <laughs> to Hopefully. help with that process. Um, so we've been doing that for years. So that that's one of the, the big positives for our state, which is, you know, people will still get to participate in the democratic process. If this does go to a primary, we will be mailing out ballots. In November, we mail out ballots. So that's less of a big concern. But I think getting access to the ballot and sort of being open to what those opportunities look like. Because the only risk, the only risk is, is more people get on the ballot. And I don't understand why that's a bad thing. Yeah, exactly. Like we should, we should have more people running for office. Absolutely. I agree with that too. And you know, that's, that's why we're doing what we're doing, right? That we should have all sorts (laughs) of different people. And and that's what I kept telling the governor and the secretary of state, like, Put them on the ballot. They don't got vote if they don't have community support. <laughs> nobody will vote for them, <laughs> right? Exactly. What harm right. Do to, you to add another name on the yep. ballot. So anyway, exactly. Thank you so much for coming on and <laughs> having this conversation with me. And before we go, you know, yes. what other information <laughs> you want people to know? Where can they get in touch with you? Where can they learn more about your campaign and support you? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we are in Utah. So my website is cheek for for Utah, U-T-A-H dot com. Um, we do have a Facebook page, which is Jamie Cheek for Utah. Um, and then we have a robust Twitter presence, uh, which is always fun. <laughs> and that's at Cheek for Utah as well. Um, and then I'm really responsive to emails. Um, anybody who sends me an email, I, I give a personalized response from me. I'm the only one who checks it. Um, and that's Cheek for Utah at gmail dot com. Um, but yeah, so you can reach us kind of on any of those platforms. Um, we should be doing some town halls here in the near future. Um, so yeah, we'll be we'll be out and about <laughs> virtually. Fantastic. And 
can donate to her through uh, Act Blue. Check her out. Just put in her name. Mm-hmm. And also, we'd be remiss if we didn't throw a shout out to our national coalition, No Damn Left Behind. You can find yes. out more about them at nodamleftbehind.com. We also have a robust mm-hmm. Twitter following um, and always stirring up <laughs> the dialogue yes. over there and um, <laughs> making sure that we have support for Democrats all across the country. And mm-hmm. I believe that we have a big uh, special event coming up this week for No Dem Left Behind. Do we, are, are we going yeah. public with that yet, Jamie? <laughs> I don't know if we're going public, but you should keep your Thursday evening open. Yeah, let's like that. Keep <laughs> your Thursday what I would say. open. <laughs> And follow us uh, yes. on Twitter because we'll definitely be putting Twitter. information there. You can follow me at yes. SWFLMom2020. You can also find out information mm-hmm. uh, via hashtag NDLB2020 and mm-hmm. learn about our big, yes. super awesome event coming up on Thursday evening. Yes. All right. Well, thank you so much be for great. being with us here, Jamie, and for the rest of our audience Absolutely. and for everybody listening to us in the future. Uh, Thank you for giving some time to listen to two candidates who are trying to make the world a better place in the era of coronavirus. Yes. Thank you. And we will see you next time at Dr. (laughs) Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dr. Cindy Speaks. If you'd like to learn more about her campaign, go to cindybanyay.com or connect with her directly at vote at cindybanyay.com. We love connecting with people. Contents of this podcast are paid for and approved by friends of Sandy Banyay.